Well, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn in your swords of the Spirit to the book of Proverbs. We're going to be in the first chapter of Proverbs in verses 8 through 19. Uh, Two months ago, we began our occasional series on this book uh, in which God calls us to walk in the way of wisdom. And King Solomon opens uh, his book by revealing the the true source of all wisdom in verse 7 of the first chapter, uh, where he says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. In other words, if you want to learn to be wise, then fear God first. And so wisdom is rooted in who God is and in our relationship with Him. And so Solomon drives home the point by reminding us that only a fool would reject real wisdom and and instruction. And so the root of, of the wisdom in all of these Proverbs, the hundreds of Proverbs that are in this book of Proverbs, uh, the root of all of this wisdom is planted in the holiness and the goodness of God. And the very idea of being wise yourself is rooted in knowing God. And from that relationship with God, well, then we're able to make wise decisions. We're able to behave wisely. We're able to wisely discern the complexities of life and so on and and so on. And so while we certainly can and do, uh, uh, while we certainly can and do make bad choices, uh, that only happens when we decide to reject godly wisdom, and not because there's anything wrong, of course, with God's wisdom. And so Solomon, having established all of this in one brilliant Holy Spirit-inspired stroke of the pen, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, he begins to elaborate by showing us the clear distinction between the way of wisdom, which always leads to life, and the way of sinners, which always leads to foolishness and destruction. And in fact, he's going to spend the next nine chapters elaborating on all these things before he gets into the individual Proverbs themselves in chapter 10. But here in our passage today, Solomon wants us to to see the true nature of what it means not to fear the Lord. He wants us to see the real story behind the scenes of the allure of the sinful life. And so very appropriately for Mother's Day, these opening words of our passage today are the heartfelt words of a father and of a mother to their son. This is their passionate plea uh, for their son to live his life in God's way rather to be enticed by all the sparkly false promises of a way of life that is contrary to God. And so this is a message primarily for young people. And if you qualify as young, that means that you're younger than I am these days. Uh, But whether you're a millennial, which means you're 23 to 38 years old, or whether you're a member of Generation Z, which means you're anywhere from 4 to 22 years old, uh, these verses are for you. But of course, we all know that God's Word is for everyone, no matter what our age. And so I'm sure uh, that we have some things uh, to learn from the Holy Spirit today no matter who we are. Namely, that sin makes promises that it cannot keep. Sin makes promises that it cannot keep. We we forget this constantly. Uh, But Solomon wants us to understand that despite its promises for the good life, uh, consenting to sin destroys us. On the contrary, God's ways always lead to life. 
God never blesses sin, but he always blesses obedience. That's an absolute. And so as God is speaking to you today through Solomon, and especially to those of you who are young, who have uh, your lives stretched out before you with all of its wonderful potential and, and all of the wonderful possibilities that are ahead of you, here's the big idea for you to keep in mind as you live that life. The only wise way of life is God's way. The only wise way of life is God's way. Now, we're not speaking only of salvation here because even as believers, we, we can do things that are contrary to God's way, can't we? What we're talking about here is the way you conduct your life, what makes you tick. You, you are going to make bad decisions and bad choices along the way. That's a guarantee. But what path are you on? Are you on the sinner's path or are you on God's path? And so that's the question before us as we open up to Proverbs 1, verses 8 through 19. And let me read this for us. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Well, may God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing and the understanding of his word. Well, as we take a look at at this passage, we we notice in verses 8 and 9 that we've got two uh, uh, sort of introductory verses to help us to understand what's to come. And so Solomon is, is essentially saying, Hey, son or daughter, daughters are included in this. There's, uh, this can be applied to both sons and daughters. He's saying, let's sit down and have a talk. Your mother and I uh, have some things that, that we want you to know. We're going to have a little family meeting. And all you sons and daughters are going, oh, no, not one of those. <laughs> but, but look at what Solomon is saying here. Pay attention because he says, don't ignore what I'm about to say to you. I, I know you get tired of all my lectures and so on, but what I have to say to you today is very different. I'm not just going to go on and on about, about how you need to study more or dress appropriately and do your chores and, and all those kinds of things. What I've got to say to you today has eternal value because it gets at the heart of the matter of how to live your life. It gets to the heart of the matter of who you are. In fact, Solomon says, Here's how important these words are for you. They are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. 
And so if you really take in what I'm, what I'm about to say to you, and you and your mother, or, or, or my mother and I, what we're going to say to you, if you really take all this in, and if you do what we're about to say, then it's going to be as if you're clothed in honor. In other words, here's how to really be somebody. Here's how to really make a difference. Here's how to really live your life well. And that is, if, you're, if you will live your life for God. And then Solomon uh, kind of goes on. The implication here is, is that, well, I've just explained to you how the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So now I want you to understand how easy it is to forget that. I want you to understand how easy it is to go the wrong way with your life. And so somebody with gray hair, please say amen. It is so easy. It is, it, is, it is so easy to do because you're going to be surrounded in life by people who want you to go the wrong way with them. And you know what? The reason this is so dangerous is because you have the same kind of heart that they do. You have a heart that really does want to go their way rather than God's way. And so this is what Solomon begins to explain in verse 10. And so as we look at the rest of this passage, we need to notice something about it. It's arranged differently than, than we're used to. This isn't going to necessarily fit neatly into the Harvard-style outline that you do in English class. This is Hebrew poetry. And one of the really cool techniques of, of Hebrew poetry is something called a chiasm. A chiasm is a literary device in which a sequence of ideas is presented and then repeated in the reverse order. And this is exactly what we see in verses 10 through 19. And so in your bulletins, I've laid it out for you in a, in a handout. If you don't have one of those handouts, raise your hand and a, and a uh, deacon uh, will get one to you. And so let's, let's take a look at this. Let's walk through these verses and follow the way of a sinner. Follow the way of a sinner who wants you to go with him, and let's see what happens. And the first thing that we see is the sinner's way that seems so good. In verse 10, we see the enticement of sinners. The sinner's way always seems so good at first. You see, the thing about sin that we've all got to recognize is that it's attractive to us. We're not attracted to, to sin or tempted by sin because it's ugly or distasteful to us. Of course, it is to God, but not to us, of course, unless we're really mature in Christ. But sin is tempting because we want what sin has to offer. We all are, are this way. Sin entices us. Sin tastes good. It feels good. It smells good like our favorite food. Sin is persuasive because it promises the easy way to good things. Get a good grade by cheating. Get a raise at work by fudging those reports. Get friends by dressing immodestly. Sin is persuasive because it promises to make bad things look good. I'm in love, so why can't I be intimate before marriage? Well, you know, it's really not stealing if I'm taking from a big corporation. They're just swimming in money. They're not going to miss a little bit. You know, that person makes me so angry. I, I think what they need more than grace or mercy is a solid piece of my mind. That'll fix them. That'll straighten them out. 
So sin is really like the spark notes or the cliff notes for life. It's a way of getting, getting out of having to read the whole book, of having to do the hard work of life. Sin promises the easy out, quick satisfaction. That's exactly why it's so enticing, isn't it? And so the sinner's way seems so good. But Solomon in verse 10 says, Do not consent. As enticing as sin is, don't go there. Don't allow your mind and your heart to be corrupted by it. And, and so to put that in another way, in a, in a more positive way, rather than in the negative, uh, what Solomon is saying is to be strong. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in knowing who God is through your fear of Him. Later on in the Proverbs, in Proverbs 18, verse 10, Solomon says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and and is safe. And then King David uh, shows us how to stand strong by humbly bowing before God through prayer, recognizing that sin is bigger and stronger than we are and that we need God to help us. And so in Psalm 61, uh, David says, Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. But you know what? To be able to pray that prayer, we've got to fear God. We've got to understand that it is God who can destroy both soul and body in hell, as Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28. We've got to desire God and his goodness. We've got to be like the the man that King David describes in the passage that Conrad shared with us a few minutes ago in Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. You see, the thing that we've got to realize, brothers and sisters, every single one of us, no matter how old we are or how young we are, is that that ultimately fearing and loving and following God takes hard work. It takes hard work. It's never the easy way out, but it's almost always the hardest way possible. That's why Jesus called following him the narrow way. Ask Paul and his friends if they thought the persecution that they received because they followed Christ. Ask them whether they thought that was easy. Ask your mom and dad if they've ever lost because of their faith. I bet you they have. And if you follow Christ for the duration of your life, you're going to have the same experience. You're going to lose friends as well. And so if your goal in life is to avoid hard things, to avoid hard work, then I'm afraid that you're going to have an awfully hard time loving and following Jesus. But you know what? The beautiful thing is, is that if you love him more than yourself, ironically, you're going to find rest for your soul. Jesus says that in Matthew eleven twenty nine, And then in verse 30, he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so what you're going to find as you go through life is that following, that in following hard after Christ, there is peace, there is joy, there is rest, but there is never rest and peace when we take the sinner's easy way. And so then in verse 11, we see a bloody ambush that destroys the innocent. 
You see, the enticement of sinners is slick and persuasive. It's a really, really good sales job. And Solomon wants us to be ready for it. And so in verse 11, if they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Well, you know, misery loves company and so do sinners. Sin isn't always done in secret. In fact, it's usually done out in the wide open for everybody to see. That's where sin is usually done. And so the sinner says, come on with us. Come on. Hey, come on. Let's have some fun together. This will be great. Let's do this. This is classic peer pressure. This is just kind of the same kind of peer pressure I remember from middle school. I remember when I was about 12 or 13 years old, I had a a friend named Mike over to my house. I really wanted to impress this guy because he was one of the cool guys. And so uh, we ran out of things to do at one point, and so we started walking around the neighborhood idly looking for something to do. You can see where this is going. And so we, we see this other kid. I didn't know he was a neighbor from from about a block or two away and I'd never seen the kid before and so uh, Mike asked me who he was I said I don't know and and so Mike decided it'd be fun to start throwing rocks at the kid and he wasn't a very good shot fortunately he missed him and but then Mike said well, well here you, you get some rocks and throw them throw them at, the, at this kid and so here was sin's promise to me if I went along with Mike, I'd, I'd have the friendship of a really popular guy, and that would certainly elevate my own reputation. And so instead of saying no, which I knew was the right thing, I picked up a rock, and I was a really good shot. And I nailed the poor kid right in the head. It was horrible. I'll never forget that moment and the horrible feeling that I, that I experienced when that happened. But I did it. You see, literally, I had participated in just the kind of ambush that verse 11 describes without the deadly consequences, praise be to God. If it had been a bigger, big enough rock, I don't know what would have happened. But this is just the kind of ambush that you and I are enticed to participate in every single day. You know, our, our friend publicly shames somebody, and so in our minds, that gives us permission to do the same thing. We hear a talking head on the news show assassinate the character of a politician, and so we feel justified in doing the same thing. We don't think twice about it. But, of course, in verse 11, the ambush is set for an even more vile goal than just the sin of verbal abuse. This is a trap that is set for the innocent with the intention of doing real harm to those who have done nothing to deserve it. And so in verse 12, we see the trap. We see by the nature of the ambush that these sinners really want the complete destruction of their victims. This is a trap that's intended to kill. Now, Sheol in the Hebrew tradition is the place of the dead. This is namely the the invisible world of the unrighteous dead. This isn't really hell per se, but it is a concept of where those who are separated from God go. And so as the sinners say in verse 12, let us swallow them alive and whole, the idea here is that they're raining a total destruction down on the innocent that is clearly not deserved. This is unprovoked and mean-spirited and purely selfish violence for no other reason in particular except to please the perpetrators. And this is just like our culture's attack on the unborn through abortion, isn't it? 
This is like the human traffickers that we're realizing are all around us today who are preying on the vulnerable to exploit their bodies for profit. This is like racism which strives to take away the dignity of fellow image bearers of God simply because they look different. And this is like the way that we can look down our noses at other socioeconomic classes of people. This is like the way we hold on to our anger toward others and anger which Jesus compares to murder. And so the sinner sets the trap to get what he wants even if it means destroying other people. And that's a sin that every one of us at some point in our lives need to repent of. Next in verse 13, we see the sinner's motivation uh, as he promises prosperity because of this violence toward the innocent. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. This is the promise of sin that the gain will be worth whatever it takes to get it, even if it means destroying another human being. My dad once had an acquaintance who, a long time ago who impro- approached him about an investment. Uh, he wanted him to invest in some property, with, and there were promises of, of great wealth if he did it, this incredible return on his money. Well, something didn't seem quite right about this deal to my dad. It seemed way too easy, and so my dad said no. There's no such thing as a get-rich proposition or get-rich-quickly proposition. Well, sure enough, about a year later, Dad's acquaintance was in the news because he was, in fact, in jail. Because it turns out that the deal that he wanted my dad to participate in was a Ponzi scheme, but he had cheated a bunch of people out of their life savings in the process of this. He had destroyed some people for the sake of his own wealth. And so likewise, we as a culture say that the unborn are not really human beings and that our convenience is worth more than whatever that is in the womb. Human traffickers want money and cars and power, and so they force young girls into slavery. And we oppress people who don't look like us so we can prosper. And tightly to our wealth, we say to the poor, as James quotes us, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. And then James asks a wonderful and pertinent question. What good is that? And then we harbor our anger and it turns into bitterness and then into pride. I'm better than you. I'm more righteous than you. I'm harder than you. And so this false sense of lordship over another human being rises up in us, all because we're holding on to our anger. But you see, no matter what the sin is, there's always some perceived gain on our part. We sin because we want something. We sin because we want the advantage. And so the bottom line is that the sinner wants prosperity and comfort however he can get it. It doesn't matter how. Well, then in verse 14, we see the sinner's enticement and along with 15, wisdom's call. The sinner wraps up his argument in verse 14, throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. 
Look how great this is going to be. We're going to be, we're going to be wonderful together. We're going to do this together. We're going to have fame and fortune and comfort. We're not going to lack for anything that we want. And if we do, well, we're, you know what? We're just going to take it. We're just going to take it because we can and because we want it. And we're going to be happy and we're going to be content. But in in our passage, verses 14 and 15 are like a U-turn. On the one hand, you've got the sinner in verse 14 making this one last effort at grabbing you to drag you along uh, the way with him. But in verse 15, it's Solomon speaking again. And this is wisdom's call. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. And so here's the choice that we all have to make on an almost daily basis. Are you going to go the sinner's way or are you going to go God's way? And Solomon is helping us to make that choice. What Solomon is saying is don't do it. Turn around, make a U-turn, head back toward God. Don't listen to them. Don't go that way. Go the way of God. And so in the following verses... Solomon starts taking us back along the way that we've come, along the path that the sinners have walked us down so that he can show us what's really going on with those who don't fear the Lord. So he can show us the real story behind the allure of the sinful life. And so in verse 16, we see the sinner's real motivation. For their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. We quoted Proverbs 18.10 a few minutes ago. We saw the righteous man run to the Lord, but the sinner here in verse 16 is running toward evil. There's an incredible eagerness here. Verse 13, which is the parallel verse to 16, it just looks like all they're after is a bunch of stuff, money and valuable things and and power and, and that sort of thing. But their real motivation is pure evil in verse 16. Their feet run to it. They're eager to participate in it, even to the point of shedding blood, even to the point of, of gaining what they want to gain at the expense of other human beings. This isn't unintentional, spontaneous sin. This is premeditated, intentional sin. This is a conscious rebellion against God. Hold back your foot from their path, Solomon says. Don't go that way. And of course, David in Psalm 1-1 agrees. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Paul agrees in 1 Corinthians 15-33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. But here's the thing, we're called not to associate with sinners not because we're better than they are, because we're not. We're called not to associate with sinners because we're just as prone to run toward evil with them and not toward Christ. And so, as followers of Christ... Peter reminds us of our true calling, of of who we are in 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. That's wisdom's call, isn't it? That's the call of wisdom. And so the sinner's real motivation is pure evil. But the real motivation of a believer is holiness. And so then in verse 17, we see the real trap. 
of Solomon takes us back to the trap and, and has us take a second look at it, and, and we begin to see its true nature. Except that in the English, it's, a difficult, uh, it's difficult to translate this particular verse from the Hebrew into English. In our ESV Bibles, it says, For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But you see, I don't know that birds are really that smart. I don't know that birds are smart enough to realize that this net that you're spreading for them is a trap for them. In fact, the sense of, of this verse in the Hebrew is quite different from that. The Hebrew is better translated into something like this. In the eyes of a bird, the net is strewn with grain for no reason. In other words, the bird doesn't have any earthly clue that there's a connection between the grain that you put in the net and the net. He doesn't realize that it's a trap. He just sees food that's free for the taking. And so with that understanding, we move on to verse 18, and we see that the bloody ambush that was previously set up by the sinners is actually an ambush of self-destruction. This this trap that was set by sinners in verses 11 and 12 that seemed so sure that it was going to destroy the innocent is actually a a trap that destroys the sinners instead. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Now, of course, our sin certainly does have real consequences for those around us. We can't forget this. Just ask a wife whose husband has been unfaithful. Just ask one of your friends who's been hurt by somebody's lies. Just ask the families of the victims of the school shootings. Just ask the victims of human trafficking. Those consequences are very real. But there are also very real and grave consequences for the sinner. And these consequences reveal an eternal reality about their own souls if they don't turn away from their sin and turn toward Christ. You know, the unfaithful husband didn't gain a thing like he thought he would. The, the liar only deceived themselves. The school shooters never achieved their sick goals. Human traffickers might be rich, but they, along with every other unrepentant sinner, are under the just and holy judgment of God. They have destroyed themselves by falling into their own trap. They have condemned their self, themselves. And this is what Jesus talks about in John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see, Scripture makes it abundantly clear that we can't have one foot on God's side of the fence and the other foot on the devil's side. What God is expecting of of us is a clear, positive, genuine decision to believe Jesus and to follow him. And if we don't make that positive, genuine, clear decision to follow Christ, then we cannot have eternal life. Without Christ, we continue under the anger and condemnation of God. Now, of course, this does not mean that God is like the sinners in verses 11 and 12, the sinners who want to destroy innocent people. Now, that's who the devil is. 1 Peter 5, 8 tells us this. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But we can never forget that God never tolerates or condones or blesses sin. Sin is an offense to him no matter how small it is. 
But you see, I think sometimes we like to hide behind the fact that God can use anything for his glory. That somehow he's satisfied with mediocrity in us. Somehow we think uh, that, that, that we can hide behind this. And this idea relaxes our own view of the seriousness of sin. Yes, it is absolutely true that God uses all things for his glory. For those who are in Christ Jesus, he even used the sin of Pharaoh for his glory. Amen. But brothers and sisters, not once, ever, 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 never does he ever bless sin. He's never glad that we've sinned. I have never heard God say to me, you know what, Scott? I am so glad you decided to sin because my ways sure weren't working. He's never said to me, you know, if you hadn't come along and sinned, I would have failed. And so the fact that you have offended me and rejected me was the best thing that ever could have happened. I've never heard God say that, and I've never read that in his word. But you see, if it were true, then Christ wouldn't have gone to the cross. There would have been no need. But the fact is, is that God sacrificed his own son, which means his own son died. And you know what that means? that the wages of sin really is death. Every single sin has got to be paid for one way or another. And the only question is whether yours are paid for by Christ or by you. And so the trap that the sinners set for the innocent is actually a trap for themselves. They've set an ambush for themselves there and if they never repent and come to saving faith in Christ they will never receive his grace and then in verse 19 we see that the sinner's way is the way that destroys we're back to where we started now in verse 19 such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain it takes away the life of its possessors This is why Solomon said in verse 7 that fools despise wisdom and instruction. To do so is ultimately fatal. Only a fool would jump off of a cliff with nothing to catch him but the ground. Only a fool would try to live by following the sinner's path, by refusing to fear God, and by rejecting his wisdom. And so far from things that seem so good, those promises that the sinners made in verse 10, it is the sinner himself who ends up swallowed whole by Sheol. It's the sinner himself who's taken to the place of the unrighteous dead and just utterly destroyed. This is clearly not what God has in mind for you and me as believers. True, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But you know what? You prove who you are. You prove who you belong to by the things you do. You remember how James said famously, faith without works is dead. And so given all that, the Holy Spirit's message to us through Solomon is clear, don't you think? That no matter how old we are, the only wise way of life is God's way. The only wise way of life is to resist sin by the strength and power of God. Surely we all fail. 
But the path of our own lives ought to always be toward Christ, toward holiness, toward obedience, ever increasing our distance from and decreasing our association with whatever is not of God as defined in his word. And I think James wrote as good of a summary of these verses in Proverbs as you'll ever find in James 1, beginning in verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is exactly the kind of death that Solomon was writing about. Sin promises life, but it delivers absolute destruction, including your own destruction. And then James goes on in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In other words, whether you're a member of Generation Z or a millennial or an old guy like me, you know what? We're all called to live God's way for his glory. And this means our whole lives, not just what we do on Sunday, not just by liking things on Facebook or social media that are Christian, not just by knowing a bunch of scriptures. All those things are wonderful things. But brothers and sisters, what makes you tick? Who are you? Who is your life about? Is it about God or is it about you? Do your desires have the best of you or does God have the best of you? Even if faith means that we get less stuff or reputation or money or status or whatever in this life, living God's way means that we're going to receive the good and perfect gifts from above. I want that kind of blessing. I don't know about you. Those kind of blessings are infinitely and eternally more valuable than anything else I can think of. And so if sinners entice you, do not consent. Don't be fool. Remember that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and of wisdom and of learning to live God's way. Let's pray. Holy and gracious God, we thank you and praise you for who you are. We thank you that you are the God who saves. We thank you, Lord, that you are a good God who is holy and who calls us to be holy. We thank you, Lord, that by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, You have given us the means to live a life that brings glory to you. And so, Father, we ask that in all that we say and do, in all of our experiences in life, that you would cause us to resist sin, to not consent to the way of sinners, but only, Lord, to follow hard after you and to do the hard things so that we can receive the blessing of rest and peace in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.